say everything's bigger in Texas, including climate change. That's why Houston is leading the energy transition. Here in H-Town, the fourth largest city in the United States, entrepreneurs from across Texas and around the world are gathering to work with titans of industry to build the technology that will reduce emissions and power a low carbon future. We sit down with those change makers and wildcatters who are solving the toughest energy challenges. With trillions of dollars on the line, we dig into how Houston will bring technology to market on a massive scale. Join us as we talk with the leaders of the energy capital of the world as they show us how the energy transition gets done. I'm Lara Cottingham, and this is the Energy Technology Podcast. And I'm Jason Etier. Let's jump in. So hello, we're super excited to today have Trevor, Trevor Best, who is the CEO and co-founder of Syzygy. Syzygy makes a new type of chemical reactor that is driven by renewable electricity and can perform many different chemical reactions such as making hydrogen or turning CO2 back into useful molecules. So Trevor, tell us what Syzygy actually does. So uh, Syzygy is a company that is commercializing technology out of Rice University. Uh, Two professors at Rice University, Professor Peter Nordlander and Professor Naomi Hollis, they went down this rabbit hole of a field of science called nanophotonics for 30 years. And what they have discovered is uh, the world's most uh, efficient and uh, high-performing photocatalyst. A photocatalyst is a material that uses light instead of heat to do chemical reactions, and the photocatalyst they have discovered is hundreds to thousands of times uh, higher-performing than any other photocatalyst in history. So we combine this photocatalyst with ultra-high-efficiency LEDs, Uh, Thank you, marijuana industry, for pushing the LED industry to make hyper-efficient lights so they can grow plants indoors. Just so happens that those lights work perfectly with our reactor, combine super-efficient lights with super-efficient light harvesting catalyst, and you get a new type of technology that has not been seen before and ultimately allows us to make a ultra-high-efficiency chemical reactor that can be built out of low-cost materials like aluminum, glass, and plastic and do many of the fundamental chemical reactions that make all the products you see around you every day. So tell me more, because I remember the first time you told me about your company, and I thought, I have no idea what he just said. The words (laughs) out of your mouth individually made sense, but together I was confused. So how would it be used in in a perfect use case? So a great way to think about how you apply our technology is to start by picturing like a giant chemical plant or a giant refinery. And if you were to look at one of these operations, what you would see is these massive smokestacks. Okay. And if you've ever, you know, for those of you in Houston, if you've ever driven through Baytown, you know exactly what I'm talking about. A lot of those smokestacks are there because of uh, combustion. And what they are doing in these refineries and these chemical plants is they're burning a lot of fuel to produce heat. And that heat is used in conjunction with uh, traditional catalysts to perform chemical reactions. And this makes things like hydrogen, it makes things like ethylene, you know, ammonia, which is fertilizer, these really fundamental molecules that are built up into, you know, all the products we use every day. So uh, at the heart of that you know, plant is this huge chemical reactor that's using combustion to drive its operations, similar to like an engine in a car. 
So we replace that chemical reactor with Artec. Artec runs, as I mentioned, using LEDs, which can be driven with renewable electricity and does not need any combustion. So we can make those same molecules, you know, that go go on to make fertilizer and plastics and things like that, but uh, with no combustion. So if you were to drive by a big, you know, chemical plant operating using Artec, there would be no smokestacks. And uh, at the fundamental level, that's what we're going for. Uh, chemistry without the emissions. And and I remember early on uh, when we used to talk, you would use this analogy where the leap in efficiency is, is kind of like the leap uh, to LED light bulbs from, from traditional filament heat-based incandescent light bulbs. Is that a similar analogy here? Uh, as, in terms of like numbers, like how much we improve things, like yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a... Inside a chemical plant, it's a little different than a light bulb. Of course. So I, I don't use that analogy quite as much as I yeah. used to. But uh, yeah, we do see a very dramatic jump in efficiency uh, with our most recent results. Uh, the chemical reactors we are operating in our lab today are operating at a much higher efficiency than the chemical reactors inside refineries and chemical plants around the world today. And uh, a lot of that is driven by the extreme efficiency gains that we've seen in LED tech. Mm. Hmm. So you mentioned that you are talking about technology that didn't really exist before. The folks at Rice were working on it for a long time. A lot of the entrepreneurs that we've talked to and that are in Houston have been in the energy industry for a while, and they're taking an idea, something that's been around, and they found a way to tweak it. Right. So they're like innovating a concept, but you're completely innovating something new. So tell me about your background and how did you get pulled toward the semi-crazy sounding thing that didn't exist, but you're going to make happen and change the world versus I've got a way to make a slightly better mousetrap. Yeah. So uh, completely concur. We are not reinventing or we are not like improving on the mousetrap. We are completely reinventing it from the ground up. Uh, so my uh, history is a bit, you know, not normal. And uh, I started, you know, Midland, Texas, grew up 18 years, uh, you know, born and raised in the heart of oil and gas company. Energy is in my blood, probably in a very real way. And you know, then went on to college, got a triple major in business from Texas Tech University. And after Texas Tech, went to China uh, came back, got a job in the energy industry at Baker Hughes. A few years after uh, joining energy industry, went into project management, ultimately became a quality engineer. Uh, was responsible for uh, you know understanding metallurgy and developing equipment test plans for ultra deep water equipment. Mm. Uh, it's not so often you hear a business major go become an engineer, then uh, became quality manager uh, for Gulf of Mexico uh, for Baker Hughes, which has a lot of R&D equipment. Uh, became focused on ultra deep water applications, got into the R&D facility and never left. And the end of my uh, tenure at Baker, I was responsible for quality of the invention process mm -hmm. at uh, one of their main R&D centers, uh, the Center for Technology Innovation up at uh, 290 in the Beltway here in Houston. Uh, in that, got very, very comfortable with R&D, with new product development, and uh, met my co-founder, Dr. Suman Kadiwada. Uh, you know, Suman and I, thick as thieves, uh, two peas in a pod. We you know, jive a lot. And one of the things we saw was the energy transition coming. Uh, we saw the need for dramatically new technology to help the world decarbonize. And we did not think that that was going to happen internally in the energy industry. So we went, we struck out, went looking for a tech, mm. had a whole evaluation process and selected this. 
put it through the evaluation process. We saw that, you know, I mentioned that it was 100 to 1,000 times better than any other photocatalyst in history. We saw that and we immediately knew that something was special about this. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I decided to uh, quit our jobs and you know, go in on this full time. And, and how did you know that the, the technology was at that right stage where it didn't need to stay in the lab another five years? So we developed a framework, as mm. I mentioned. It was technology, market, and impact. Mm. And you'd assess, like, is the tech at the right place? I'll tell you a little bit about that more in a second. Is the market, like, ready for it? If we build this, will people buy it? So we'd call customers and mm-hmm. ask them an impact. Like, does this actually do good for the world? And we'd measure those things. In the tech assessment, we would specifically look at the white space for patents. Like, is this patentable? You know, how much pre-existing IP is there? Is it going to infringe on any other patents? Uh, And we would look at the uh, difference in the results between like what the status quo is. So we'd go research the status quo and just compare like how much different is this? And uh, then we would look at the professors Mm -hmm. and like who invented this? Are they credible? Do they have a lot of like really strong publications. And uh, that's about all you can do at that stage. You, It's very, very difficult to know if something is ready to like come out of, you know, really early stage fundamental research and get into product development. And so you got to take a chance. Uh, you mentioned like what made you do this crazy thing. We knew that this was crazy when we started. Uh, when we started the company, I actually estimated my own odds of success at one in a hundred. Mm-hmm. But I really wanted to like put it all on the line and swing for the fences once in my life. And we, for the life of us, we could not find a reason why this wouldn't work. We did diligence for like seven months mm-hmm. trying to break it. And it was just like outperforming everything on every metric. And like, we knew it was going to be hard as hell. We knew it was a long shot, but like, we just couldn't see a reason that it wouldn't work. And uh, like, oh boy, it has delivered in spades. It has been able to deliver on everything we thought it could and even more. And so it's pretty amazing. So where is Syzygy right now? And what do you think the odds are today? So when we started, it was just me and Suman for... And the two professors, so it's me, Suman, Professor Hollis, Professor Nordlander. Uh, they were like part time. We would meet them for like an hour a week. So uh, you know, they're full time researchers. They they would help us a little bit, but it was mainly me and Suman doing all the day to day. That carried on for about a year. Uh, managed to raise first money. Uh, that was a hell of a ride learning how to raise money. You know, don't didn't talk about the photo catalyst nearly as much by the end. Learn how to do storytelling, you know, like cheaper, cleaner chemicals. Uh, raised about a million bucks, grew to four people. Mm-hmm. Uh, got some really amazing results, broke most of the world records in the field of photocatalysis. Used that to go raise 10 million, grew to 40 people, advanced the technology to like a pre-product level, uh, raised 23 million. And now we're at like an MVP developing our go-to-market product. We should have product in the market like middle of next year. Hmm. And, uh, now going out to go raise more money, which is a hell of a ride. We're at 70 employees. We just leased a 45,000 square foot manufacturing space to start scaling up our manufacturing operations. So come a long way from like two people in a garage. Nice. And, uh, just to go back a step, uh, you, you kind of describe this deliberate approach to starting a company, uh, identifying a market space, identifying a technology, and then and and then getting the company started. Is that like a repeatable process for people who want to be founders or want to start a 
the company themselves. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. And how would they go learn about how to do what you did? I have no idea. I had to. <laughs> so Syzygy is company number four. Yeah. The process is specifically based around why the first three companies died. Mm. And so like company A died because of this. Let's make sure we don't do that again. Company B died because of this. Uh, so like company A did not pick the right team. Company B uh, did not develop a financial model until way too late and found out the damn thing could not make any money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In which case it's like, gotta kill it. Uh, company C uh, found out there were IP issues mm-hmm. like eight months in mm-hmm. and BASF and Dow were suing each other over this chemical that was like core, that was fundamental to that product. And we were like, oh my God, if we make a product based around this, we're gonna get sued into oblivion. And so think about it, tech. so met Suman, so team check. Mm-hmm. You know, in technology market impact, like technology, make sure we're good because of the, <laughs> the one that had IP issues. So make sure yeah. that's not present here. Market, make sure customers will buy it. And it's got a really strong financial model. Check impact to make sure we're actually doing good for the world. Were mm-hmm. companies A through C all through rice? Is that how you nope. found them? Uh, company A was a water nonprofit. Mm-hmm. So like clean water kind of thing. Uh, company B was uh, not as altruistic. It was mobile fuel delivery. So like an app where you could basically like Uber Eats, but for gasoline mm-hmm. and just hit a button and somebody would come fill your car with gas. Uh, gas is not a high margin product. I would strongly <laughs> recommend anyone from starting that business. Uh, and then uh, company C was uh, another water purification technology. So it was about making a water bottle that mm. like you could basically just scoop up dirty river water and shake it for a few seconds and it would make the water clean. Hmm. So experience, a repeatable process, but actually there, there's some key learnings that, uh, that uh, translated to helping to define the next business. Yeah. Good. Um, as you're thinking about growth, right? You're growing, you're getting stuff in the market, you're gonna be hitting that commercial inflection point soon where things start to open up. What are some of the big roadblocks that, you, that keep you up at night? Man, at this point, uh, it's, it, almost none of it is related to technology. Like the mm-hmm. technology has really proven itself to be very robust. Uh, we've got an amazing team. Uh, I like to say that I've got the easiest job in the company. I actually don't really do anything anymore. I just talk a lot and mm-hmm. like I get to talk about all the amazing things that my team is doing all the time. So like got that one checked off. The main things that worry me now are all based around like execution. Like, will suppliers deliver on time? You know, and what's happening in the broader market? Like, uh, you know, are NFTs and Bitcoin tanking the global market right now? Like, <laughs> like worry about those kind of things and how that'll impact the company. And, you know, is energy transition like really going to take hold and our company's going to start spending those those big bucks to actually live up to the promises they made. And so I worry about those things. Uh, Got to be honest, at this point, technology, like it has proven itself to the point that I don't worry about it anymore. Good, good. And wh- when you uh, talk to customers, tell us about their interest in the energy transition. What is driving them? And, and, and what do they hope to achieve? So what I see uh, from customers is a couple key drivers uh, and they are all financial (laughs) for better or worse. Uh, The financial drivers are opportunity. So Mm -hmm. if end users are willing to pay for cleaner products, 
companies will invest because they they think they can sell at a premium. Uh, this is true in certain market segments. Like if you're making makeup, like there's absolutely a market there for like cleaner, you know, products and zero emission products. Other things like fuel, they are much more price sensitive. So uh, those kinds of industries are waiting for government regulation to force them or for some kind of technology that is not only cleaner, but actually wins on cost as well mm -hmm. versus traditional options. And uh, for any of you watching the news, government regulation for climate change is challenged at the moment. Uh, there are only a very select handful of technologies that can beat fossil-based alternatives on price in the near future. Mm -hmm. uh, thankfully, some of Syzygy's options are among those, but uh, those in clean tech, things that can compete with fossil on price are the exception and not the rule. Yeah, and, and I know uh, with the photocatalyst, you can actually make pretty much anything but you focused on hydrogen. Yeah. Tell us about why hydrogen. Uh, and just to clarify, can't do pretty much anything. Uh, <laughs> no cookies is, coming out yeah, of this. No, no yeah. cookies. Uh, it is limited to gas phase reactions okay. right now. So, what is a gas phase reaction? Tell me what that is. Well, there's a lot of things like uh, methanol and ethylene. You know, These are done at slightly higher temperatures so that these molecules are in gas phase so, when they're okay. created. So like, there's some very fundamental molecules that are done in gas phase. Uh, hydrogen, hydrogen goes into ammonia. Ammonia is fertilizer, which is how we all eat. You know, hydrogen also goes into dehydrogenation for fuel production. Uh, so like those are very big things. Uh, CO2 utilization, if you're taking CO2 and turning it into other molecules, CO2 is in gas phase. So lots of very interesting fundamental chemical reactions in that space. Okay. And, and then again, so why hydrogen is where you're focused today? Yeah, so we started on hydrogen because uh, we predicted back in you know, 2018 that there was going to be a big push for hydrogen in the 2020s. Uh, this was all based around decarbonization. And so if you look at decarbonization, uh, what you'll see is electrification only goes so far. You also need chemical fuels that can be burnt. Uh, electricity is not always uh, available when you need it, like certain applications, it's really good to have like, you know, some kind of chemical fuel like diesel so you can turn it into electricity mm -hmm. when you need it. It's not as, as dispatchable as you want it to be. Uh, so what we saw with hydrogen was a molecule that could plug a lot of gaps in the energy transition. And so if the world wanted to decarbonize, then hydrogen must happen at some point. And that was a conclusion we reached in uh, 2018, and that was why we picked hydrogen first. Hmm. Uh, market was very big, bigger than $100 billion. There was you know, some really central applications like fertilizer, like uh, steel, uh, desulfurization for fuels, et cetera. Uh, but there's also a lot of distributed smaller applications, transportation, lab use, uh, glass manufacturing, uh, semiconductor manufacturing, all these applications need hydrogen. So you have this very varied market and uh, we figured our ability to get a foothold into that market would be a lot higher than with something like ethylene, where ethylene is really only made and you know consumed on site to do like polyethylene to go mm -hmm. to plastics. And so that like the ethylene market is uh, 
much, there's only like one use case in that whole market. And if you don't win there, you're dead. Where mm-hmm. hydrogen, there's like so many use cases. So huge market, tons of use cases must happen if the energy transition is going to happen. We saw all that. That's why we picked mm-hmm. hydrogen first. CO2 utilization was next. You know, and so like if energy transition is going to happen, if we're going to start doing direct air capture, you know, DAC, if we're going to start doing, you know, industrial decarbonization, you need reactions that can use CO2 as a feedstock. Mm -hmm. So if we actually want to decarbonize, that's a really important one. Uh, What we see next, ammonia is next. You're actually, anybody in venture is starting to, you know, is watching green molecules. They're hearing about ammonia a lot. That's a building hype cycle. It hasn't peaked yet. We think after ammonia will, methanol will be the next big one. So, <laughs> so who's interested in this? You've been traveling the world, I feel like, talking about talking about Syzygy, talking about this technology. Are there certain places that are more interested than others? Yeah. So, uh, in the past, uh, what Laura is referring to, the past two months, I have been to uh, Argentina, France, Norway, uh, Canada, the Northeast Coast, California, Korea, Singapore, and Japan. And uh, what I can say with high confidence is the whole planet is interested in doing something. Uh, different regions are kind of like at different places in their thought process. Uh, what I can say is from what I've seen, the most advanced on planet Earth is actually East Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Japan and Korea, uh, they are definitely like laying the groundwork to make some big moves. And there's a really strong cohesion between uh, business and government on actually making the energy transition happen. Hmm. And uh, I'm very excited about what I saw happening in Japan and Korea. And uh, US, Europe uh, lagging a little bit behind, but not terribly far behind. Does like geographic resource constraints play into that? Oh, I think absolutely. So like you could frame this in like, oh, hey, you just wanna like save the world and you know, clean up, uh, molecules and energy, but I think probably why they're leading the pack uh, has to do with, uh, you know, basically their national energy policy. Mm -hmm. And so they are energy importers, so they probably don't feel as secure in an uncertain future, and they are doing things to expand their options. Mm -hmm. So they aren't limited to single pathways for energy. Interesting. I like it. I like it. Um, So another question. How do you sell different markets on technology that has not really existed before? So it's different than the folks that are like, hey, I just I have a I have a different way to use a platform. I have a different type of battery. I have a different type of rig. You're like, I've got something totally new and I want you to test it out. I want you to buy it. Go. Yeah, it's it's really challenging. I'm not going to lie. I think everyone has seen kind of like the adopters curve. You know, and when you think about like the iPhone or something, there's like early adopters who like don't care about price and they just want to buy it and try it and be the first one. And then there's like a whole chunk that are like, you know, the mid stage adopters that like once it's well established and their friends have one, they'll definitely or or that really forward thinking they know person they know has one, they'll go buy one. And then there's like the late adopters that are going to wait till like the very end to try technology. That's actually pretty true across a lot of industries. And so you want to focus on uh, the really like aggressive uh, people who want to try new things. And generally, if you look at like a market and you're like, okay, who are the leaders in this market? You want to target like number three to five. Mm-hmm. 
they're big enough that they have money to try new things. And they're usually hungry enough that they want to become that like number one or two position. So you're talking about buyers specifically. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like, uh, like if you're you know trying to sell into like a chemicals market, you don't want to target the number one biggest player in the chemicals market. You want to target number five because mm-hmm. number five is hungry and they want to become number three and they want to become number one. And so for them taking a risk, they view that risk as an opportunity to increase share. Mm-hmm. And uh, like if the risk doesn't work out for them, then they're big enough, like uh, number four or five in like a chemicals play is still a massive company. So they're big enough that like uh, trying it out doesn't hurt them. Hmm. Like you don't want to go to some like true mom and pop because they they need it to work. And if it doesn't work, then they're SOL. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like number four or five <coughs> has enough money that it doesn't impact them, you know, beyond this budgetary cycle. And uh, there's they view it as an opportunity to grow. This the biggest players, the positions one and two, they're usually very comfortable with where they're at. And uh, what we've seen is they uh, view new tech, they see it as risk. Mm-hmm. So, and they try and do a whole lot more CYA mm-hmm. activities, mm-hmm. you know, where they're like trying to justify to their leadership, you know, why they're making the decision. And the decision can't be based around we can grow market share, which is a really strong justification. You know, it's, it's, based around maintaining market share and the uh since they already have it like the alternative is like do nothing Mm -hmm. just keep the status quo so positions one and two in a given market are usually very content to like keep the status quo and uh they'll evaluate you they'll try and you figure out what you're doing but uh it's difficult to push them across the line to try it Mm -hmm. so intrinsically players one and two are late adopters and and really the early adopters end up being in the the, the three to five um yeah so when you ask like, a market right yeah how yeah. do you how do you sell this kind of technology you got to target the right customer yeah. uh i don't know how much it matters like what you say like if i made the like most swinging tiktok dance ever made <laughs> like i don't think that someone buys or doesn't buy because they're like so excited it's usually based off organizational dynamics mm-hmm. and like, yeah, meet them, talk to them, figure out what kind of organization are they? Do they view risk as, uh, you know, taking risks? Do they view that as potential opportunity or do they only view it as like downside if it doesn't work out? Got it. As you're traveling around the world, are you bringing the, whatever stage you're at reactor, like in a suitcase? No, because I've seen the. Have you seen me bring the suitcase? <laughs> I've out? seen the museum of all of the different versions and how they are. We do have a reactor. travel size, yeah. Yeah, we do have a reactor suitcase for me to bring it around. I brought it with me to South by Southwest. That was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I did. I do not want to try and bring that thing through an airport. Like, uh, <laughs> if if you haven't seen it, uh, the reactor looks like something out of a Marvel movie. Like, it looks like it belongs on Iron Man's suit. It's mm-hmm. crazy looking. If I tried to bring that thing through an airport, like they would, <laughs> they would just be like, listen, we're not going to ask questions, but you're immediately arrested. <laughs> we're going to figure this out later, but you're arrested because that looks dangerous. 
Part of me is happy about that. Part of me is sad. So I'm going to go with um, national security. There you go. Yes, thank yeah. you. Hey, I'll, tr I'll try someday and I'll let y'all know how it goes out. Well, I'll <laughs> film myself and y'all can put it on the podcast. I'm oh, just man. wondering, <laughs> you know, for the sake of helping future entrepreneurs, help them troubleshoot what's helpful. Is, is How to bring your yes. prototype <laughs> through an airport 101. Ship it ahead. That's the answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Um, you, want, you want to talk about Houston? Yeah, talk about Houston because you're one of our Houston climate tech rock stars. Um, what are you most proud of about the Houston innovation ecosystem? I think just how far it's come. Mm -hmm. You know, Suman and I started in 2017. And when we started the company, I think uh, it was right after, uh, was it Surge? Mm -hmm. And uh, the only thing really going at that time was uh, Start Houston. Mm -hmm. They used to have this you know, facility out in Edo and you'd show up and they'd have like a, there's this dog bathtub that was like full of beer. It, it was great. <laughs> and, they, and they would do like the pitch the nights, pitch nights. Yep. which that eventually, uh, you know, became you know, transitioned up to become the ion mm -hmm. over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, from, yeah, from station. From dog it bathtub was, to was, cathedral yeah. of yeah. Dog bathtub wow, okay. at Start Houston to station to the Ion. That's been a journey. Over time. Yeah. It, yeah, it has been a journey. And like we were involved with station when it first started. Mm -hmm. So the first time I ever pitched on stage was like within, I think the first six months that station was open, I pitched on stage there. Uh, there was like not a whole lot going on in the innovation ecosystem back then. And uh even like finding other, you know, startups in the energy ecosystem here was like really difficult. It was uh, it was a lonely place. Mm. And like now I, I go out and there's, you know, uh, Greentown, there's the Ion, there's the Canon. Like none of those things existed back then. You know, uh, I have a dozen founders on speed dial. Mm -hmm. So like the number of people trying to start companies has just like gone through the roof in the past couple of years. I think it's because they have like a home, they have a bonfire to like get around. I think that's the single most exciting thing about Houston is uh, it's just the amount of activity and kind of gathering places that that have come up over the past couple of years. Yeah. So that has not been there. One of the hidden gems of, of Houston is a CEO networking that you host monthly mm -hmm. right over here at Axelrad, right? Yep. That, that is a good thing that, that is just... Uh, hidden under the radar, but you get founders coming together to connect and, and and grow their businesses from each other's wisdom. So if you like beer and you're <laughs> thinking about starting a company or have started a company, hit up Jason and he'll get you in. Uh, it is a great event and you guys couldn't do it this week. I actually stole it and took those people to another event and they made my event great. <laughs> <laughs> so I thank you for that. Um, so your speed dial list of founders in Houston, how do they care about climate? What does that look like? I'd say most of them do. I mean, like we're a climate tech startup. So uh, like we run with a bunch of other climate tech startups. Like uh, don't know if you know Moji at Simvita Factory. Guy's awesome. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there's uh, you know Natalie with Incentifind. Uh, just met with Janice earlier today yeah. with, uh, you know, Kanan. And uh, yeah, there's yeah. there's a lot of good stuff happening here. I, I could, you know, Sean with Criterion. I could, could sit here. Uh, Zimri with Booch Bio. Like I could just like go on and on and on. So and for anyone I didn't mention, I'm sorry. I love y'all too. No, <laughs> um, but but so Houston gets a bad rap a lot of times, and and 
I think originally it was you are oil and gas, you can't possibly be doing anything around climate. And that's changing now. And so we, we are still oil and gas. We are much more than that. And climate tech innovation and entrepreneurship has such a big part to play. And so all of those folks that you just mentioned are all part of that solution, right? Not necessarily part of the challenge. And that's what's amazing to me about Houston. Are there other things you wish people knew? About Houston? Yes. Uh, Is there another hidden gem apart from your happy hour? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if you are like a founder looking for a place to come, Houston has some really strong things going for it that aren't present in a lot of other ecosystems. First and foremost, I'm going to talk about my favorite thing, and that's talent. You know, I talked about, like, the amazing team that we've Mm -hmm. assembled. You know, those are all, like, people local to Houston. We don't need to, like, fly people in from around the world to get, like, top-tier talent here. Uh, Especially for us as, like, a hardware-based startup. Like, we've got great access to chemical engineers, electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, uh, lots and lots of people in the energy industry are very interested in the energy transition and transferring into like climate tech startups. Uh, also, like we're very strong for medical. And so if you have like a medical startup, mm-hmm. like this ecosystem is just amazing for that kind of talent. Uh, next, uh, I'd say real estate. Mm-hmm. So uh, one of my favorite things to do is tell other founders that are in Boston or Silicon Valley how much we're paying for rent. And I have almost made people throw up. I Mm. did make somebody like, (laughs) you know, shoot beer out of their nose or something (laughs) whenever I I told them how much we're paying for rent because it is just dramatically cheaper. Mm. And so to get the same kind of space in a different ecosystem that you can get here, it is just orders of magnitude more expensive. And so like we are in no way handicapped by like real estate in this city. And I really like that. And, uh, yeah, I think, uh, beyond that, the last thing that I think is really important about the Houston ecosystem is just, and this is very true for once again, energy and medical is just access to customers. Uh, pretty much all the major energy companies and a lot of the major chemical companies have like operations here and they can just be like, Hey, I'm going to swing by on Tuesday. And we're like, cool. And you can't, do that uh we host lab tours like every day Mm. or every other day and it's just because there is such a high density of customers here and it's so easy for them to come visit and even if they aren't coming to visit you like what happens a lot is they're coming to houston for some other reason and it's just so easy for them to pop in uh whereas if you're in a different ecosystem like uh you know maybe the energy executives aren't flying through San Francisco because mm-hmm. they don't have a good excuse to, but they definitely come through Houston. Gotcha. Um, what what about Houston? I mean, in terms of climate, in terms of our climate of our climate, right? It's super hot. We're hit by hurricanes. We've had floods. What does climate and the energy transition mean to Houston? I don't know, like try and not get totally screwed by, <laughs> by climate change. Like it's kind of, it's kind of rough here. You know, after Harvey, I think we're all like in PTSD mode every time it's hurricane season. Like, I'm like, okay, how much water do we have? Like how long could I survive if the grid collapses? Like, I don't know if y'all like were looking, I saw something on LinkedIn earlier today. I think electricity hit a 
thousand dollars a megawatt yep. yesterday. Yep. And like, that's just a that was just a Wednesday, right? Yeah. yeah. Like uh my God. <laughs> but does that inspire you to keep moving on? You said that thinking about the energy transition is one of the things that keeps you up at night, mm. right? And so I believe that because Houston is so impacted by climate change, especially in the past couple of years and every day, um, that that's kind of helping spur people on and it's helping people really like dig deep and say, I want to figure this out. Yeah, whenever, whenever you have the kind of weather events that we've been having in around mm -hmm. Houston – like Harvey, the Texas freeze, the the you know grid unable to handle the heat recently, uh, you start to view this in a different light. I one of the things that I was thinking about as you're asking this, and I got to be honest, I don't know how much different it is for Houston than other areas. I think if you're in California and you see like all the fires mm -hmm. that are happening, uh, it's starting to get evident everywhere. And Houston's no exception. Mm -hmm. uh, it has been hitting us pretty hard, and I think it's going to continue hitting us. And like, I personally draw motivation from that. Like, not the kind of positive, like feel good motivation, but the kind of like uh, you know, backed into a corner, fight for your life kind of motivation. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. so but I, I the silver lining in that, if there is one, is that. Uh, different from California, we are the energy capital of the world. And so the companies here, the people here have a little bit more impact mm -hmm. in the realm of climate change in energy transition. Oh man, if you could convince all the companies in Houston to like really like commit to energy transition and they all did, uh, that would potentially be one of the most meaningful impacts of almost any mm -hmm. city on earth. It's hard for me to imagine another city that has as much of a handle on what actually happens in the energy transition in Houston. Absolutely. That's the, that's like, that is how Houston can be a rock star in the realm of climate action is that if the companies here can, can take what they're doing here, if they can find a solution and they can take it everywhere, they can reduce emissions in cities all over the country. Can they do it? Can they do it faster? fast enough, you know, to be determined, but we're seeing that unfold right now. But young people are super interested, right? The folks who you're hiring, the folks who are um, becoming the next entrepreneurs and making the next companies and going into the workforce, they want to work for a company that's going to change things. If we're seeing that, like uh, <laughs> we, we are uh, poaching a lot of people from the big energy companies and uh, like what we got going for us is message. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it's pretty cool. Most of the people that are joining, they're like very committed. They want to be part of that. They want to like help fight and help change the world for something better. And it gives us a really energized, you know, feeling in the office every day. It's yeah. to that. I was just talking with someone else and, and they were uh, griping about work from home. And uh, it's so funny to me because like we just don't have any problems with that. Like people mm -hmm. want to come into the office. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there's for a long time, like the big problem we've had is like keeping people out of the office because we have too many and like it's been like covid season for like feels like half my life now yeah <laughs> <laughs> but like like trying to keep the numbers in the office low uh and that has to do with like the culture and like that feeling you're talking about is there in houston like those people are looking for jobs in the energy transition and and we we talk about we were talking about how houston can influence the rest of the world 
when you think about 2050 and the climate goals we are setting for ourselves, what is the climate goal we, be sh we should be shooting for? In Houston or, or Syzygy or in the world? Let's do all three. <laughs> uh, let's start with Syzygy. Yeah, so for Syzygy, uh, I mean, we're a startup. Like the main goal is like, don't die, like get out there and- uh, I think don't die is all of our goals. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so beyond that, like, uh, you know, 100X return, uh, for our investors, both in terms of, uh, you know, impact and, uh, and, you know, ROI, uh, beyond that, like if we can like hundred X our impact and basically write off the carbon impact of everyone who's ever been associated with the company for the rest of their lives, like, because that's the kind of impact we've made, like that would be, would be very meaningful for me. I would feel like I've done my, my service to the species. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and what should our goals be just as a, as a planet? This one is kind of tough. Mm -hmm. Let's see. I'm trying to think of how to say this without <clears throat> taking any swings at capitalism. <laughs> uh, we need to do two things. One, we need to actually commit to making a change mm -hmm. in our emissions and pollution and impact on the environment. Uh, I know that a lot of people like really got onto corporations in COP26 because uh, a lot of corporations are just greenwashing. And what we need to have is we need to have corporations stop greenwashing and actually like commit and take the risks. Mm -hmm. uh, beyond that, we need to not leave the bottom half behind. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that things are going to get interesting for the next few decades. Uh, I don't see... Uh, I don't see the future as being more predictable than the past. Unpredictability uh, can lead to, you know, a lot of things. I see, I read about like the upcoming surge in like climate refugees mm -hmm. and things like that. And we need to make sure that we don't leave people behind. Uh, I think that we as a species uh, have the altruism we need. And if we can work together, we can actually bring everyone up and uh, achieve some kind of like Star Trek future <laughs> where things, yeah, you know, like are utopia. I think it's possible. Yeah, I, we but, might not have the technology to reach a Star Trek future, but do we have the technology to to achieve those goals today? You should come by our lab. Like, <laughs> hell yeah, we do. I think it looks very Star Trek. Okay, yeah. okay. I'm just I'm waiting for the warp drive. Is all I'm saying. You know, yeah, our reactor looks like a warp drive. <laughs> So with uh, with tech like ours and and others like for some of the founders that I mentioned earlier today, like I do think those those futures is from an emissions impact are possible. But like whenever I go to the to talk about like we can't leave people behind, mm -hmm. uh, there's like a human element to this. Like we can't forget like compassion and mm -hmm. altruism. Once again, I said I wasn't going to do this without <laughs> said I was going to do this without taking any swings at capitalism, but. Uh, I think that for us to really fight climate change and for us to to actually like make an impact, we need to remember the compassion mm -hmm. 
and the compassionate side about this and why we do things. It's not just all Excel sheets and numbers. I totally agree. And I, you know, I am not in this for the money, clearly. <laughs> uh, but I always try to, when we talk to folks, say that success is not just investment, right? Because that seems to be the the big thing that entrepreneurs and startups want to talk about. And that's what they focus on. And I totally get it because they have to be in it for the money. But success in climate tech has to be getting the technology into the communities that need it most. And how can we do both? How can you be financially successful, but you are financially successful because you are getting the technology to the places and the people that need it, right? Um, history is made of a lot of examples of people who made money really quickly, or they made a lot of money, or they made something very cheap, mm -hmm. right? And we've learned now that cheap isn't necessarily always best, that there are impacts that we don't calculate for. And I think everybody wants to figure out how to do that. We just don't know yet. We're working on it. And I think uh, like recent history is showing that uh, the accumulation of wealth doesn't always correlate with being a good person. I mean, I guess like all of human history shows that. But like recently, I think it's uh, more in the public eye mm -hmm. that the uh, ultra rich might be able to do more to help others. Mm -hmm. But also, so from a fossil fuel perspective, the idea of having a refinery that didn't have smokestacks, right? Like that's that's somewhere how you're making a future that's in between. It's not saying we're going to completely get rid of this thing that you've known that we've relied on for forever, but you found a way that you can move forward that doesn't harm the communities that live next door. Mm -hmm. Because at least here in Houston and in Texas, they really are next door. And, right? and still yeah. deliver products that are the best price, that are useful, that Absolutely. increase a standard of living. Right. So it, it, it is a challenging balance. My We're not arguing for ditching capitalism completely, <laughs> to yeah. be clear. My, my favorite approach is uh, compassionate pragmatism. Mm -hmm. And so, like, uh, I think that, like, if you're just going to do, like, virtue signaling, mm -hmm. you know, but not actually, like, commit, like, s say one thing and do another, that's bad. Uh, I think that the best approach is one where you build a bridge between different communities, different options. And so, like, I I'll say it here, I'm not afraid to work with fossil fuels, mm -hmm. uh, even though I know that's not always, like, the best look right now but if you can work with them they're very energy rich if you can work with them with no emissions going into the atmosphere and no negative impacts on the environment or the community like why wouldn't you mm -hmm. you know it's a resource that yeah. that we can use now, you have to do the diligence to make sure that there is actually no emissions going into the atmosphere and there is no negative impact on the communities and uh, traditionally, that industry has not always been as strong on that as they could have been. But I think times are changing. And uh, yeah, but you, you shouldn't ditch any one pathway just because it comes with baggage. You should find a way that you can use the resources available to you uh, without disenfranchising anyone around you. So there's a lot of kooky climate solutions out there, right? Uh, if you had $100 million... And you could use it anywhere other than Syzygy. Where would you deploy that capital to have the biggest impact? That is a great question. <laughs> uh, so I'm trying to think about like what my 
favorite solutions are. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so I am going to talk about like the simple, like very realistic. Like, this is what I would consider is like a sure thing. And I've actually got a few of those examples. And I don't think any of those will surprise anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'm going to talk about like the the out there might work if it does work it's amazing and i just love it yes kind of shots yes so uh so for the more like sure kind of thing uh i would say like uh honestly like methane digesters Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's a lot of methane emissions out there Mm -hmm. uh very sure thing lots of dairy farms lots of wastewater treatment plants Mm. Uh, makes RNG can help like reduce the use of traditional fossil natural gas and like value prop is there. Uh, they have regulatory support in a lot of environments. Like it's just a numbers game and it's a very like there's not much tech risk mm. there. And globally, like there's a lot of opportunity there and it takes a big bite out of emissions. Uh and I'm saying that one because it's a little bit more fringe than like solar or wind. Mm. Like if I had a hundred million dollars, I might just do like solar or wind because like it needs to be more of that. And like economics there, there's not a whole lot of question around what that project economics for that are. Uh, now the crazy one, the moonshot. Actually, I shouldn't say crazy because I love this technology and uh, I've actually looked uh, at it pretty in depth and there is a very strong scientific basis for why this could work. Uh, but the moonshot uh, is actually another company that is based in Houston called Quays. Mm. And uh, the CEO, Carlos, a uh, friend of mine, uh, he is working on uh, drilling technology to go after basically ultra deep geothermal. Mm-hmm. So if you go deep enough for geothermal, like deep into the bedrock, it gets really hot and you can get really high power density. And so you can you know, make a whole lot of energy from a geothermal well. The thing is, is traditional tech can't drill like that deep into bedrock. So what uh, Quaze does is they use uh, millimeter wave technology. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, this is electromagnetic radiation. Think about it like a laser or something. And uh, basically, it sublimates the rock. It turns it into gas. Mm-hmm. And so this is a gross oversimplification, and Carlos is probably going to have words with me if I (laughs) summarize it. But basically, they have a laser drill that can drill like, you know, 10 miles into the surface of the Mm. earth to Mm -hmm. access, you know, deep geothermal. Mm. And uh, if they are successful, you basically have unlimited energy available 24-7 anywhere in the world. And... uh, like I have seen the pictures from their lab where they are drilling giant holes very deep through rock. Yeah. <laughs> um, I like it. Yeah. I think we need to have Carlos on. I want to hear more. Uh, and I'm a little sad that you didn't mention bringing back woolly mammoths, but that's okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll Jurassic Park later. Yes. So speaking of animals that, that may or may not be extinct, it, it, if you could bring one back, you have to tell us what it would be. If I could bring back any animal. Any animal. And honestly, woolly mammoths are an acceptable duration away. But it's been done. Or it's it's in the process of being done. And so we're trying to see if that is a nascent industry that needs to (laughs) be developed. 
Yeah, so uh, was not prepared for this question. You know, I would bring back, dude, I would bring back like one of those giant ground slots and I would like put a saddle on it and I would ride that thing around town. <laughs> you you around actually town. could go to rodeo with that. I think that would be acceptable here in Houston. Uh, yeah. Didn't we like, just have an dude, emu on the highway? I think it, you don't is, need to wait for rodeo. It's a sloth. It would be docile, right? I'm sure it would be fine. You know, no that's like saying is an elk fine. I don't know if you'd ride it. No, no one correct me. I want to live with this fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> we shall make it so. All right, there we go. Um, what else? Uh, what what can Houstonians, what can folks listening, what can they do to help you right now? So, you know, like and su subscribe. Uh, you know, honestly, like what you can do is like root for us. Mm -hmm. And uh, so if you're if you're the average Houstonian, just like root for us, like follow us on LinkedIn. You know, if you work in an energy company and y'all do chemical reactions, like you need hydrogen or you have CO2 and you want to process it into something else, if you're making methanol or ammonia, like you should reach out and talk to us. Like always need customers, always need investors. So uh, yeah, if you're just average Houstonian, root for us, support us. Uh, if you're working in a, in a big energy or chemical company and you need hydrogen or CO2 processing, hit us up. How can they hit you up? Uh, best way is, uh, via our website, uh, or, you know, email us at info at plasmonics.tech. Mm -hmm. So not Syzygy, it's plasmonics.tech. Yeah, correct. Okay. Plasmonics.tech. Mm -hmm. Uh, Syzygy.com. Some guy owns that website. He hasn't updated it since 2009. I have offered him, actually, here's a way you can help me. I've <laughs> offered him crazy amounts of money. If you know who owns Syzygy.com and can get in contact with them, let them know. I will pay them a ridiculous sum to buy that URL. <laughs> um, question I clearly should have asked from the beginning. What is Syzygy? And how many Ys are in it? And so there are three is Ys it? in Syzygy. Syzygy is a real English word. It absolutely destroys in Scrabble. So if you can land that on like triple letter, triple word score, like it's a sure win. Mm -hmm. uh, so the word Syzygy uh, means the alignment of three planetary bodies. And a great example is an eclipse. Anytime the sun and the moon and the earth line up during an eclipse, that is a syzygy. So like if Jupiter, you know, Saturn and the earth line up, that's a syzygy. For us, it means the alignment of three things that are shaping the future. That's energy, technology, sustainability. Where energy, technology, and sustainability line up, you get syzygy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> nice. Love it. It's cheesy, but I love it. <laughs> Apart it. from it being hard for me to say every single time, that does make a pretty good story for why you would name it. Yep. So uh, as we're uh, wrapping up here, is there any last like parting wisdom you can give people trying to get involved in the energy transition? Yeah, I'd say uh, research, you know, look around, see what startups are in your area, see what big companies are doing, you know, and uh, if I were you, one thing that I would like to kind of just end on, something to, to ruminate on later tonight is uh, that, Things seem kind of hopeless right now. Mm -hmm. The world is a little crazy, but there's a lot of hope. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the thing that gives me more hope than anything are the other companies out there and the founders that I've had the pleasure of meeting. There is an army rising right now to you know fight this, to fight climate change, to bring new technology to market. And uh, it gives me a lot of hope for the future. And I know that we're going through you know the beginning of this transition and transitions are always rough but uh 
I wish that people could see what I see mm-hmm. and and feel that hope that I do. But you know, together we can do this. So yeah, follow us, find us. Uh, if you are you know in a big company looking for interesting technology like ours, reach out and uh, you know have a little hope for the future. Trevor Best bringing the hope. Yeah, Trevor, <laughs> thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.